Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. American novelist Thomas Wolfe. Executive Pastor Eric Ryan starts the new series, Ecclesiastes, with this sermon entitled Vanity of Vanities, which covers Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 9 and 14. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great. Uh, to be with you today. As Jeff said, the, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, is a little bit of a heavy one. And uh, we're going to jump into it this morning and, and, and trust that you'll be encouraged even as we, uh, like much of the Old Testament, we look through and, and we see the face of Jesus. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not doing a, a corporate uh, prayer of illumination, but let me pray for our time in God's word this morning. Jesus, I do ask that you would indeed illumine our hearts that you would take your word and you would allow us to see it and to see the meaning of it. And Lord, to see the great king that he points us to. Uh, Lord, uh, Ecclesiastes is a heavy book, uh, and yet it's a book that your people need, and it's why you put it in your word. And so I pray as we uh, even sit and think on the vanity of our world, the meaninglessness at times of our world, I pray, Lord, that you'd be right there with us. I pray that you would take your word and you would saturate it deep in our hearts and that we would be changed. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. About four or five years ago, uh, we were still in the young kids stage at that time. And we had, uh, I think it was uh, five kids, uh, seven and under at the home that time. And so you can imagine uh, what the nighttime routine looked like for us. It was a little bit of chaos, a little bit of running around, a little bit of wrestling here and there, a little bit of praying over here, and then hopefully they're jumping into bed, and that for us is our finish line for the night. And so every time you hit a little bit of a speed bump towards that finish line, it can be a little bit frustrating. And that night, one of our three-year-old at the time uh, just was not letting go of the toy that he was playing with at that time. And so it was one of those kind of uh, dad move him towards the bed moments. And I remember putting him in his bed and I was just so irritated and so at the end of myself that I literally just took the covers and just threw them over his face. I said, good night, hit the light, and walked out. And you laugh as if you don't expect pastors to do that, but we may do it more often than you do uh, at that point. 
And, and, and so I go back and I'm, I'm sitting on the couch and, and all of a sudden the, the crying continues and the crying begins to elevate. And before you know it, it's starting to sound like he's in pain. Like it's starting to sound like he is scared out of his mind. And I walk into the room and, and the covers are still over his face. And so I pull him over. He's dripping sweat. He's uh, breathing hard. And, and I said, buddy, what? It took honestly probably three or four minutes of pulling him in, breathing with him kind of next to me. Hey, let's calm down. And then finally he's like, buddy, what, what happened? And he looked up and he said, dad. I'm afraid of the dark, and you threw the covers over my head. And right, the adult side of us is like, son, God gave you two hands. Take the hands and pull the covers, right? But in that moment, right, when we kind of calm down as parents and we start to think a little bit more maturely, right, we start to go, man, for him, fear of the dark is, is his reality. And before you knew it, he went from fun to immediately darkness being his world. And what did it take? It took his father coming, pulling it over, but then also giving him a little bit of wisdom. In that moment of facing that darkness and then kind of debriefing it with dad, my, my son grew in wisdom, three-year-old wisdom. But he grew in three-year-old wisdom in the sense that he began to understand when the darkness comes. My dad's helped me learn how to breathe. He's shown me that he's there. And now I can move through it. Ecclesiastes, reading and sitting and saturating Ecclesiastes is like the blanket being thrown right over your head. And for many of us, the darkness and the brokenness of our world, we don't necessarily like to face it. In fact, for a lot of us, we've actually created even coping mechanisms and techniques to move right past it. And yet God and his wisdom, God and his omniscience has put Ecclesiastes right smack in the middle of the Bible for his people. And he said, no, no, I, I want you to listen to the words of the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes. And I want you to listen to the words of my spirit inspiring that person to write this book and to look the darkness of the world and the brokenness of the world right in the face. And, and so that's what we're, we're navigating. And, and I wanna start this morning by just giving you a few um, introduction uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes, if you were to translate that Hebrew word into the Greek, you would have a form of the word that we know as ekklesia. You may be familiar that ekklesia is the Greek word for the church. It just is a picture of the assembly of the people of God gathering around to hear uh, from somebody teaching or preaching to them in that way. Ecclesiastes is actually the form of that word that actually means the person who is addressing that assembly, the one who is addressing, if you would, the church. And so that's why you'll see in, in the ESV that the word is, is preacher and not teacher. That word koheleth can actually be translated really both ways, but it's trying to capture the, the context of actually the title of the book itself, Ecclesiastes. The one who wrote Ecclesiastes is addressing pretty specifically the people of God. And so there's a little bit of debate over who wrote the book, but what there's really not much debate is that the book was written from the perspective of King Solomon. So King Solomon is the son of King David. 
King Solomon, if you'll remember from the Old Testament, was the one who prayed for God for wisdom and God granted him that wisdom. Even secular historians would say King Solomon was one of the wealthiest kings uh, to ever live. And he ruled much of the known world in a sense at that time. And so whether the debate is around whether Solomon actually wrote this in his older age or whether or not it was actually written during that kind of time when Israel was being exiled towards Babylon as a lesson, <clears throat> excuse me, as a lesson for the people of God. And in that case, just using the, the literary tool of writing from somebody else's perspective and picking the perspective of Solomon. Again, Solomon was also in some ways, right, the person who would have experienced everything this world has to offer and some. He was wealthy beyond measure. Every pleasure at his disposal, he had the authority to essentially rule the known world at that time. And he was given by God wisdom. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes, whether it's Solomon, we will refer to him as the preacher. The preacher writes from the perspective of even in light of all that, it's meaningless. There's this word that repeats 36 times in 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, the word havel. And that's the word that we take, and, and some translations of the Bible would say meaninglessness, some would say vanity. The, the picture of this word havel is like a mist. It's like a vapor. It's like something that you kind of begin to try to wrap your hands around, and it, it just disappears. And the, the preacher is saying, look, life, life is vanity. Your life is, is here one moment and it's gone the next. And as you begin to study Old Testament books, obviously recognizing repetitive phrases and repetitive words are really, really important. Havel is the most repeated word in this book. It's important. But also this phrase that you saw twice in the reading of God's word, under the sun. The preacher is looking at everything under the sun. Everything. And he says meaningless. Throughout 12 different chapters. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 9 again. I want to start off by just talking about this idea of vanity. And how we experience it in our world. Verse 5 says that the sun rises and the sun goes down. And hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 14 says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. Verse 6, he said that the wind blew to the south, and it goes around and around. It goes and it returns. He's, he's pointing to the idea of this, this pointless effort. And, and I want you to keep kind of in the back of your mind as we kind of highlight some of these things in this passage, as much 
as our phones and technology allow us to see this even more, these truths even more. And yet here is a king or here is a writer during a time with very limited technology. And all he has to do is look at nature and see the very same thing. It's pointless effort. We work hard one direction and then it comes back around. Things literally in our world, uh, whether it's nature, whether it's things at work, things at home, they happen and they literally seem pointless. Verse seven, he says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. This is a painting of a picture of the, the work is never done. How many things this week did you repeat? How many things? Right, we're in February. We repeat weeks in February, right? It's like it's gray outside today, it's gray outside tomorrow. Okay, went to work, went back to work. Right, we feel this in our bones. I was talking to my wife one time and she was saying, as a mom, this is one of the hardest realities. I do clothes and clothes are dirty. I do the dishes, the dishes are dirty. I parent and give a, a directive and I'm gonna have to give that same directive tomorrow. Right, everything repeats. And the writer of Ecclesiastes goes, look, all the streams run into the sea and yet the, the sea is never full. Right, it has this echo of this question, when will good be good enough? Verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This is a picture of insatiable appetites. Insatiable appetites. And we know that this starts as when we're a kid and we've got these, this deep desire for these toys at Christmas. And before you know it, we're three months in, probably right around now. And those toys have already lost that good feeling. And that feeling goes with us on and on. It comes with us through relationships. It comes with us to work. It comes with us as we experience highs and, and try to live and work towards certain awesome experiences in our world. And everything starts with this just awesome taste in our mouth and it just gets drier and drier and drier. The ear is not filled with hearing and the eye is not satisfied with seeing. Verse nine, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done. There is a complete lack of control. How many times this week did you look at the news or how many times have you seen various situations maybe in the lives of your kids or grandkids or people at work and everything starts to feel like it is completely out of our control. Here is the preacher, the son of David, the one who has everything out, uh, everything at his disposal. And he is saying what has been done is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. It's meaningless, it's vanity, it's a vapor. There's nothing new under the sun I have seen, this is an important perspective, whether it's somebody writing from the point of view of Solomon or Solomon himself, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all of it is vanity. 
It's a mist. But we, we feel this, don't we? He's taking most of these illustrations from nature and he's applying them to life, but we don't have to look too far. I wanna, I wanna highlight some things that are really, really good about living in a Western culture. But really quickly, we're gonna kind of fly through these things. But I want you to know these are in and of themselves good things. But the, the Bible would, would show us that everything, every system, everything is sick. Everything has brokenness to it. We live in a highly educated culture. It is a great gift to us, and yet many feel like the system is failing us. Many who are still working through the education system and trying to get their degrees, many feel overwhelmed. They feel like they're constantly being compared to others. They're striving for a future that they don't entirely know yet what it looks like. Our education is a, is a massive gift in our lives, but it's vain. Industrialization. We live in a, a, an era, a, a time post-industrial revelation, we, a revolution rather, we have been able to produce in ways humanity has never dreamed of, but has changed the home forever. It used to be that most business was family business and work time and family time were the same thing, striving together. We live in one of the wealthiest eras, if not the wealthiest era of our world. More wealth in the world than there has ever been and yet we are still anxious. Anxious about the economy, anxious about keeping up with the Joneses and some, if not all, of our wealth at times has been hindering our relationships. We have said time and time again here, money is not what the problem is. But the Bible would say that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We're some of the wealthiest, most comfortable people to ever live. And yet it feels meaningless. We find ourselves anxious. We have the privilege of living in a democratic society. Freedom is an incredible gift. We have the right to vote in people that we want to influence the laws of our land. That is unbelievable. And yet if you're anything like me, you could maybe name a couple dozen people around you that you kind of wish didn't have the right to vote. Right, we look around and, and there's so many different worldviews and there's, there's so many different perspectives and they're all coming to vote on our leaders and we go, man, it, it feels vain. On top of that at times, you, you maybe have gone to vote in, uh, in, in whatever context and on the ballot you look and it's like, this, this is not the names that this society was meant to drum up. It feels empty, like a vapor. All good things, but there's vanity to it. So what is our hope? Our hope, I, I would want to start here. I think the first thing we got to recognize is that for the Christian, hope starts when you actually live without hope. 
Hope starts, and I believe to some extent we, we could say that this is why God put Ecclesiastes in the Bible, is that hope actually begins when we live without hope. Alan Noble, in his book, uh, You're, uh, You Are Not Your Own, is quoting T.S. Eliot here, and that, that quote of, that, that idea of waiting without hope comes from something T.S. Eliot said, but I want to read this quote for you. It says, but we don't live in a rightly ordered and just society, and we should not expect that fact to change anytime soon. It said, we must wait without hope, as T.S. Eliot says. But the hope Eliot tells his readers to wait without is false hope, a hope that demands results, an impatient hope, a hope that is pragmatic, a hope that rushes to action, a hope that cannot be still and know that God is God. This false hope naturally leads to bitterness. When we are convinced that we have the plan for redeeming the world and that we are the agents of that redemption, whether it be spiritual or political or physical, we won't have the grace for those who aren't part of our movement or who aren't doing enough. The inadequacies of others become intolerable because redemption is just around the corner if those people would just get on board. For the Christian, we come to Ecclesiastes, and what I would encourage you to do is, is to look it in the eye. I, I would encourage you to, when it, when it opens with, here are the, the words of the preacher, I would encourage you to listen. So, like, what does it mean for me to be up here saying, hey, I would encourage you, the first step for the Christian is to live without hope. To actually look it in the eye and go, the, the world is, it's got a vanity to it. It is a vapor that, that disappears kind of in our hands as we, we go after it. And yet just last week we shared that the vision of the church is kingdom flourishing. What does that mean? Well, Jeff, Jeff shared kingdom flourishing, shalom, irene. It's this idea that, that we would be in right relationship with God, with self, and with neighbor. Right, and so what, what does that look like? Well, it looks like I, I see the gospel for what it is. I repent of my sin. I turn to Jesus as my only salvation. I walk with him through discipleship. I begin working on that relationship with God. And as he does that, he begins to reveal to me the true nature of who I am. Yes, that I was created in the image of God. Yes, that I'm now an adopted son of Jesus Christ, but also who I am because of my brokenness that's still attached to me, because of that sin nature that's still attached to me. And I begin to know and understand how that works and who I am. And then, and then I'm able to actually lift up my head and look around me to my neighbors. I'm able to engage. I'm able to put their needs ahead of my own needs. I'm walking in right relationship. And when we start to do that corporately, there's flourishing, there's peace, there's shalom. The problem is that sometimes we read about those things and we hear about those things and we begin to picture a utopia. We've been, uh, many of us that have been kind of growing up in the last several decades, we've been rightly encouraged in who we are. We've been told, go and change the world, impact the world. I wanna encourage you this morning, friend, 
you have impacted the world. You, you were created in the image of God. There are relationships around you that you have significant impact on because of who God made you to be, because of where he has placed you. The, the impact has happened. But if you begin to think, that impacting the world, changing the world means I'm going to remove the vanity before the king returns. That I'm gonna create some kind of utopia before the king returns. Then that weight will crush you. Ecclesiastes is this huge gift from our God right there in the middle of the scriptures that says vanity, vanity, it is all vanities. And we're not supposed to just look at that and go, yeah, that's dramatic. We're supposed to sit in it. And the first step towards hope is actually to be a people that acknowledge that from our Lord and live without hope. Without hope that it'll all be fixed before he returns. So what does that mean for us? We're getting there. Ecclesiastes ends in chapter 12. And the last, one of the last verses, 13, there's 14 verses in, in chapter 12, ends this way. We'll, we'll come back to this most weeks in this series. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now Ecclesiastes, again, written on the, uh, before Christ, right? The, there's, there's revelation that happens in Jesus, in his story, in his resurrection that we'll get to in a second. But from the writer of Ecclesiastes' perspective, he just homes in. So, so what's the point? If, if everything else is vapor, what can I wrap my hands around? and begin to live life with. And he says, fear God. Go through every element of your life knowing and recognizing the presence of God, knowing and recognizing you live in God's world and obey his commandments. He, he says later on, so where is joy found? Joy is found Sorry, he says earlier on. He says earlier on that the, where's joy found? Joy is found in enjoying God and the things that he has given to us. So yes, everything's meaningless. Yes, the Christian looks at that in Ecclesiastes and goes, okay, I live now without hope, without hope that we are moving towards a utopia, without hope that it's all gonna change before he comes back if we just get our act together. But I acknowledge that in this life I, I fear God and I obey his commands, that is living life. And in that, he will, he will begin to show you, Jesus sums up the greatest commands, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You begin to come salt and light because you're not trying to change the vanity, you're just being present. You're just being salt and light. Paul clarifies this in a powerful way for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. And he's, he's running to the church in Corinth and he's essentially saying, well, what in the world is suffering? 
suffering as a church, all these things we just listed, they, they could be rightly categorized as a form of suffering. Everything's broken. Everything we touch breaks. Everything we accomplish, we have to do again. It's this a hamster wheel that just seems to go on and on, and it feels broken, and it feels hard, and it feels sad, and at times it can feel specifically and reveal itself as suffering. He writes this in chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, the things under the sun, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I said at the very beginning, there's a refrain that's going to happen as you read through Ecclesiastes where he talks about, I have seen everything under the sun. And on that side of Jesus, that was all God allowed the writer of Ecclesiastes to see. But we, we as the people of God, we as the church, we as the adopted sons and daughters of Jesus, we get to see it now. And Paul writes, he says, don't look to the things that are seen. Look to the things that are unseen. Because this momentary affliction, this momentary affliction that is occurring to you under the sun, we have now seen above the sun. And it is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. This is the good news in Jesus Christ. That everything broken that we have to fix again, every vapor that we try to wrap our hands around, whether it's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a certain type of family, everything we try to grasp that is broken, every moment that we're walking around, and for some of us it is very easy to mutter under our breath, it's meaningless. Jesus says it's not. Every moment of your suffering, every moment in Jesus Christ now has meaning. It's now meaningful. It is now preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I thought to myself, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit on this, this eternal weight of glory. What does this mean? I need, to, I need to flesh this out for people. Let's just say Paul ends it with beyond all comparison. We, 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 we can't even wrap our minds around what it is that he's preparing for us. And in part, he is doing that for us in the suffering in walking through the vanity of our world and being salt and light to the people around us. That is the good news in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took what was meaningless and through the gospel, he makes it meaningful, preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. I want to close this morning by just 
encouraging you to consider a couple things, two things as we walk through this series. One, as I was processing this series and, and processing my friends and, and people in this church and uh, in our church as a whole, I think, I think this group is, is coming into this series a little bit on a spectrum. Uh, over here on the far end of the spectrum, I would say that there's, there's those of us who, um, again, this is the far, far, are, are a little bit toxic optimists. Right? It might be a, uh, another good way of putting it is an overly realized eschatology. Right? That means I, I, have, I have overly put the redemption of God and the renewal of all things in this current life now. Again, that's the far extreme. Over here is a toxic pessimist. Right? Over here is the person who would acknowledge what they see in the world, but they do, they do not remember the hope that we have in Jesus Christ or at least if they remember it, they don't acknowledge it. And they, and they, they walk through and they echo the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, but they don't do it with hope. And then there's all in between. I would invite you to encourage you, I would invite and encourage you to consider where you might be on that spectrum. If we're over here, Ecclesiastes is a tough book to get through, right? If we're way over here, we're probably going, hey, I might duck out until this series is over. But if we're over here, we're tempted to go, see, see, I'm right, right? But, but Ecclesiastes is in there, again, to acknowledge, yeah, hey, there's, I've told you, the, the Lord is, this is true, <laughs> Ecclesiastes is true, but there's a great hope. Consider where you may be on the spectrum as you listen. For some of us, we might need a friend. Put their arm around us and go, listen to the words of the preacher. And for some of us, we go, hey, listen, listen to the words of the preacher, but the preacher was before the Messiah. And see now the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ to be salt and light, to go after kingdom flourishing as he fills us in a world that is still vain that we cannot fix. And then the second thing I would encourage you to do in this series. There was one morning I was, I was walking into work. I tend on this side of the spectrum. Walking into work. And, and I just had this overwhelming feeling. Lord, this is This is meaningless. There was just so much going on and extended family and all these other places that all of it was kind of coming together in my heart. And I just went, this is, this is pointless. And I kid you not, I probably hadn't read Ecclesiastes in, in over a year. And, and again, just seeing the word meaningless as somebody who had to go to seminary, right? It goes, oh man, Ecclesiastes. And I went in and I, I just marked out a 30-minute meeting and played Ecclesiastes on Audible. And I cannot explain to you the way that it strengthened my soul. And it seems like it's this book that just sits down in there and it never pulls out, but there are all these moments. One, just to hear your Lord say, in all these different areas, the areas that we'll talk about will be pleasure and, and, and wealth and honor and work. To hear your Lord say, I know, I know. 
but look. Look at my son. I know, but, but fear me and obey me. I know, but experience the joy of knowing me. I know, Eric. I know. So I would encourage you to do this. I would shoot for twice a week to listen to the book all the way through. It's 30 minutes on Audible. Listen to it read all the way through. Because again, this is the words of the preacher. He's, he's addressing the ecclesia. He's addressing the people of God. And I really believe that you'll be encouraged as you do that through this series. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you are so incredibly honest with us. So I pray that as we are kind of across that spectrum that I shared, I pray that you would walk with us through this book. And that you would whisper to us, that depending on where we are, that you would encourage us. And Lord, I pray that you would change us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.